You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. High Sierra showerheads are an awesome choice because of their water efficiency, but they have to look good too. And with High Sierra, the design and style options mean they can fit into any bathroom. Finishes come in chrome, brushed nickel, oil rub bronze, and polished brass. In addition to the sleek classic model, High Sierra also offers a half dome design, handheld options, extension arms, and trickle valves to control flow. Plus, High Sierra offers the Reflections model, the only fogless shaving mirror with a built-in shower head. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking about oysters today and oysters on the Louisiana coast. I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Morgan Kelly. She is an associate professor of biology at Louisiana State University. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Travis. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we got connected because you're going to be part of a, a talk at LSU uh, coming up, part of their Science Cafe series, uh, and looking at looking at some issues with the ocean and everything. But I really wanted to dig into oysters since this is a big part of your expertise. Um, the Louisiana coast uh, oysters are kind of an iconic part of the Louisiana coast, and definitely in the <laughs> the cuisine of of Southern Louisiana and New Orleans. Um, I'm curious a little bit about the backstory. What's kind of the historic presence of oysters in along the Louisiana coast? I'm sure the numbers have plummeted from what they were 300 years ago, but could you kind of, I guess, take me through the, the history a little bit of, of oysters there? Yeah, absolutely. So we can see as early as uh, 2,000 years ago that um, – the um, Native Americans on Louisiana coast were eating oysters. We can see this in shell mittens, which are basically the, the kitchen trash piles that you can see at archeological sites. Um, and so Native American groups that lived on the coast, oysters were probably a substantial part of their diet. Um, when Europeans arrived, um, the use of oysters in more of a commercial harvesting sense really picked up. So um, in the 18 and 1900s um, is when the harvesting of oysters for um, commercial seafood industry really took off. Mm -hmm. And initially the harvest was really focused around New Orleans. 
<laughs> you can see in local papers in New Orleans, um, as early as the early 1800s, references to oyster saloons um, where folks would go to eat local oysters. Um, and oyster sellers would actually go um, to the corners in New Orleans and blow um, conch shells to advertise that they had fresh oysters for sale. Um, but they didn't really keep. And so the um, at that point, the harvest of oysters and selling of oysters was really limited to the population center where they could be sort of transported and eaten in a relatively short period of time. Okay. Um, but we can see that by the late 1800s, the oyster reefs around New Orleans had really been depleted um, through overharvest. And one of the things that happens when oyster reefs are overharvested is that um, so baby oysters live in the water and they're, they're, they swim around for a couple weeks and they settle on the shells of other oysters. And so oysters are essentially habitat for other oysters. And so as oyster reefs are over harvested, it takes down the whole population because now there's no habitat for the, for the next generation to settle. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus for the first set of um, oyster uh, protection laws that were enacted in the early 1900s um, that focused on um, uh, allowing um, commercial oystermen to lease individual um, plots of water, essentially. And that allowed them to manage and protect the oyster reefs for their own harvest on that particular leased plot of water. Um, and that was sort of the first um, effort at sort of protecting oyster harvest in Louisiana. When when the oyster populations were pretty devastated by the over harvesting and you know late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds, um, is there any science or information about you know impacts on water quality and these reefs are also habitat for other creatures right they're they're important for that is there is there information about kind of the changes to the environment? Absolutely. So you know I think um, early nineteen hundreds is is early for knowing about the water quality. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something people really knew how to sample. <laughs> but we can certainly see changes in in oyster harvest and where oyster harvest was happening before and after those um, protection laws went into effect. And so we can see a beneficial effect on, on oyster harvest of, of having some amount of regulation. Um, and then certainly today, we, we can definitely see a connection um, between oyster populations and other species in the environment and water quality. Um, today, the, the, the two most important factors for oyster conservation are still um, protecting to, to um, protecting against overharvest, mm -hmm. but then the other really big factor for oysters today is the amount of fresh water coming into their environment, and that's and that's what has a connection to climate change, um, and that's probably going forward going to be the biggest threat to oysters in Louisiana. Mm. So what's kind of the, the status now, um, if you kind of assess the, the health of oysters, the prevalence mm -hmm. of oysters, um, kind of what's, what's the picture look like at the moment? Uh, people aren't happy with the, the amount, there needs to be more, they need to be in certain areas. Louisiana is um, still the, um, represents the largest portion of the Eastern oyster industry. So Louisiana just in one state contributes about a third of the national total harvest. So we're right 
huge part of the national oyster harvest. And it's um, a substantial portion of the state's economy as well. So it's um, somewhere between a 16 and $80 million per year industry. Um, but going forward, probably the biggest threats are increases in inputs of fresh water. And that's coming from two places. Um, one is that one of the effects of climate change is that we're getting and we're going to get even more in the future, um, these big end of summer rain events. And oysters um, are happiest at about a 50-50 mix of seawater and freshwater because they live in estuaries where, where rivers come and mix with ocean water. Um, and they can survive freshwater for some short period of time because they just close up. Um, but when they do that, they're not breathing and they're not eating. And so you can imagine they can't survive that for very long. When the temperatures are cold, they can, they can do that for a couple weeks. But when the temperatures are warm, that's when they get really stressed out by freshwater. Um, and so the fact that um, climate change is bringing these big end of summer storm. So the water is already very warm. And then you get either these really long rain events or hurricanes mm. that bring these big pulses of fresh water into estuaries. Um, that, and was my, that was the first thing that popped into my mind was the hurricanes that have just been increasing in prevalence and, and frequency, especially gosh, this past summer was a doozy for the Gulf uh, with all those storms that came through. And that's a ton of rain, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, the, the worst recent year for freshwater for oysters is actually 2019, which was not nearly as big a hurricane year. Um, but um, the Mississippi River stayed at flood stage because of because all the rain that happened upstream. The Mississippi River stayed at flood stage for a longer period than, than ever on record. It stayed on flood stage until July. Um, and there were entire oyster reefs where there was 100% mortality based on um, all of the fresh water coming out of the Mississippi River. Uh, wow. So, and you, you said there's another big impact from climate change uh, that, that's going to have an impact on oysters. So there's another, another big impact on fresh water, which is... Mm. Um, man-made, um, man-made diversions, mainly of the Mississippi River. So there are plans for um, coastal protection to um, divert part of the Mississippi River to allow it to dump sediment um, and, and essentially build land in particular places. Um, and that is likely to be beneficial for coastal protection, but it will also put a large amount of fresh water on what are currently productive oyster reefs. And so that's, that's the other threat coming from fresh water um, are these planned diversions of the river. I guess it's more important to divert the river for some other reason. I mean, obviously people are aware of what the impact will be on the oysters. Yeah, it's, I think that it's, um, it's a matter of, of balancing the needs of, of different constituencies. And so um, mm. the um, Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority has, I think, been trying to balance the needs of as many constituents as possible. But um, there are going to be winners and losers. If, if, if land is not created with new sediments, um, some people are going to lose their homes. Um, and on the other hand, the act of doing that, of, of diverting this fresh water, is going gonna, is gonna to destroy oyster reefs in some places. And so I think I, I certainly don't envy the job of making that choice of deciding, deciding who the losers are. 
Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, I know that studying this this issue of climate change impact on oysters is kind of really your your wheelhouse here. I'm curious, uh, what else is happening? I know acidification of the ocean and impacting the ability for for you know oysters to form shells. That's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. We know for sure that acidification um, is a, a very important impact for oysters that live on the Pacific coast. So the um, native Olympia oysters and Pacific oysters, um, that's been um, studied by scientists in California and Oregon and, and Washington state. Um, and in fact, they've seen in some of their oyster hatcheries, there failures of entire cohorts of juvenile oysters that seem to be driven by changes in pH. Um, I suspect that pH is an important, acidification is an important part of the story here. Um, but honestly, the changes in salinity are so dramatic and so devastating that they, um, they seem to overwhelm those other effects because, because the effects of, of low salinity in freshwater are, are, are so, um, have such a, such a major effect on oyster physiology, um, and their survival that, uh, that that seems to be the major impact in this region. Oh, very interesting. That, that makes sense. But then it, obviously, uh, California coast is not getting <laughs> tons of rainfall and, and freshwater infusions there. Exactly. Huh. Huh. I wonder, so I live in coastal North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and, you know, um, and have lived in Maryland along Chesapeake Bay. And I know that there's been more rain events in this part of the country um, I, maybe not to the extent that there's been in Southern Louisiana, but I, I'll have to do some digging and find out, uh, if that's an issue for the oysters around the Carolina coast and, and mm -hmm. Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think, um, <laughs> because the Mississippi river is, is, is so big that it has a phenomenal influence mm -hmm. on the conditions, um, in, in this part of the world, but certainly oysters anywhere um, get stressed out by too much fresh water. Um, and I know that um, in the Chesapeake, and another major issue on the Chesapeake, I think it's probably an issue here as well, but I know in the Chesapeake that um, the, the land use all around the Chesapeake has major impacts on oysters too, right? So, so the rivers, every time it rains, the rivers are not only bringing fresh water, but they're also bringing um, pollution from chicken and hog farms and um, erosion from um, all of the sort of human land use in that surrounding basin. Um, and so I expect in the Chesapeake, that's another major impact of the fresh water is, is what it's bringing with it. Yeah, sure. And you've got just like the huge metro areas of DC and Baltimore right there by the by the bay also. Um, what about the warmer water temperatures, you know, rising, rising temperatures in the ocean? And, and uh, uh, is that in the areas also where oysters are those estuaries temperatures coming up and impacting them? Yes. And, and um, what our research has shown is that um, warming temperatures are especially stressful when combined with fresh water. So um, what we see is that um, particular levels of fresh water or warming, either one of them alone, often oysters are able to withstand one of those stressors or the other. Um, but the two together are, I think of them a, a little bit like a bad drug interaction <laughs> that, <Ooh. laughs> that we sort of can't anticipate just by looking at one or the other, um, how bad the effect is going to be when you put them together. Um, and so, um, we've seen that, that a, a particular amount of fresh water that oysters can survive will cause near a hundred percent mortality when also combined with warming temperatures. 
Wow. Um, before we shift maybe a little bit to seeing if there's ways to help out these oysters, um, I want to ask about the BP oil spill. This is obviously huge news. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm curious about, are there any impacts still on oyster population from that? You know, the BP oil spill happened uh, just just before I arrived in Louisiana, and so I'm, I'm less, I have to say I'm less knowledgeable about the BP oil spill and its effect on oysters. It was certainly at the time devastating, um, and I expect that especially in Barataria, where, where um, some of the biggest impacts were felt, I, I expect that those populations, um, if you went and looked at their historical levels, that some of those populations have not come back to where they were. Um, some folks also worry about the um, contamination in, in the water itself. Um, and I can say that, that that is something that's been tested. And I think that's probably not um, a major concern in terms of worrying about eating oysters from Louisiana now. It's, it's not that the, the contamination, that, the, that there's contamination present in the water that you'd have to worry about in terms of, of eating oysters from Louisiana. Um, but I do know that the impacts uh, in Barataria Bay were um, were big enough that I would expect that those populations are have not come back all the way. The other thing I can say in terms of thinking about the impacts of fresh water is another thing that happened during the BP oil spill is that to try to keep the oil offshore, one of the things the Army Corps of Engineers needed to do um, was to release a bunch of fresh water from the Mississippi River to sort of push the front of oil back offshore. And that was certainly very important for trying to prevent the oiling of marshes locally. Um, but that was actually another important source of oyster mortality after the BP oil spill was that the fresh water release um, that was important for protecting marshes also caused a substantial amount of mortality of those oyster reefs. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Makes, makes sense. Um, okay. So solutions or ways to help oysters adapt. Um, are there, what would be some, some things that need to happen or what are some efforts that might be underway to try to help oyster populations and health? Obviously stopping climate change is the, is the, is the big one. Um, but that's, that's a, a bigger ship to turn. What, what can be done kind of at a local level or what is happening? Yeah. Um, a couple things. I think that understanding um, the specifics of oyster stress physiology is really important for management. So for instance, the fact that we know that high temperatures and um, low salinity together are much worse than one or the other by itself um, can help us to make some plans about um, things like when freshwater diversions um, are conducted, um, if there's any control over the time of year. So we know that oysters can survive freshwater for a much longer period of time when temperatures are cold. And so if it's possible to do freshwater diversions when the water temperatures are colder, we know that that will be less stressful for oysters than freshwater diversions that happen during the summer. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's that's one thing, sort of having a detailed understanding of the of the physiology and the effects. Um, and then um, I think another important part of the story is going to be work that's being done in hatcheries to do to support um, off bottom culture. So so a, a growing part of the toolkit of um, the oyster industry in this part of the world is to actually. Um, breed oysters in hatcheries and then raise them in cages um, 
uh, and that allows oysters to be, um, when they're bred in hatcheries, they have sort of a nice quality of their shell because they're not sort of all stuck together. So they, they uh, <laughs> those are those sort of nice oyster on half shell that you see in a nice restaurant. Right. Um, but then because of that, um, that, that hatchery breeding can sort of support increasing the number of oysters that are produced. Um, and another thing that I think science can do to sort of support that part of the industry is to try to understand whether there are some oyster populations that are more resilient than others. Um, this is an important part of my group's research is trying to understand whether there's some oysters that are tougher than others when it comes to low salinity. Um, we think that oysters from Louisiana are, are probably better at dealing with low salinity than say oysters from Texas where the water doesn't, where the, where the water doesn't get that fresh, hmm. those estuaries. And so if that's true, um, we should be choosing the parents of the next generation of oysters. When we go to blue oysters and hatcheries, we should be choosing the really tough parents. Um, cause those are going to be the ones that have the tough oyster babies that will survive the best in those low salinity, um, those low salinity estuaries. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Selective, selective breeding here to, to get the tough kids that can endure these conditions. I, I like that. Well, um, Morgan, I appreciate all this information. Um, every time I talk to somebody about oysters, I end up getting hungry. Uh, so <laughs> it happened again with this conversation, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, look forward to following what's happening down there on the Louisiana coast. Absolutely. Thanks for a fun conversation. Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code Waterloop at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates.